Hi, I'm Caroline Yoder. And I'm Cameron Hilt. Welcome to a virtual view where we talk about healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Zach Ward. And it's Zach Ward, correct? Yeah. It's so funny. It's really like backward. I, it, when I was in my doctoral program, our, our like administrative person said, you know, your name's a lot like backwards, only it's Zachward. And I went through 20 <laughs> years of my life without even knowing that. I was like, wow, she is so right. <laughs> so for those of us who maybe don't know you, Zach, why don't you give us just a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Well, thanks, Cam, for having me. I've been here at the University of Southern Indiana for a few years now. Prior to coming to the University of Southern Indiana, I worked in healthcare. So um, worked in a variety of positions. But the last position that I held before coming into academia was building a residency program. So got to do a lot of hands-on administrative work with that, from recruiting physicians to getting university affiliations with a regional healthcare organization. It was a lot of work, but it really laid the groundwork for what I do now, which is teach in that area. So really like what I do. Definitely like reaching out and and connecting with students and and doing all of that. Absolutely. And what are some of the subjects that you teach? Yeah. So I teach at the undergraduate level. I teach the uh, intro to U.S. healthcare delivery class, which went from 15 last semester to 60. So I like wow. to I like to think that that's because of my popularity, but it's because we started pushing more students to you know, to face to face sections. And then at the graduate level, I teach more intense subjects. So I teach healthcare economics, leadership. I also teach healthcare strategy, which of all of those, healthcare strategy is definitely one of my favorites. I know that you specifically focused on the subject of provider burnout. And so where did that desire to study that subject really stem from? So particularly working in healthcare with physicians during my tenure in in, in the healthcare field, I really, uh, I got to see an organization go through an EHR implementation. So an organization started basically using a lot of different software programs and then they started, they jumped right into the EHR. And of course, it was like a salmon swimming upstream with a lot of the physicians. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of issues implementing it. And then as I started working more closely with physicians, particularly family physicians in the residency program and that project, really got to see the, I guess, the ground level, if you will, of, of the issues that the physicians faced And there was one physician in particular who we traveled throughout the country together. We did a lot of things together, building the residency program. So he and I became pretty close. And and that was one of the things that he was constantly talking about was how I expect to see all these patients and do all of this and document it all. I just can't do it all. So then they kind of planted the seed. He's talking about burnout. And as I kind of got scratching into it a little bit more, burnout was a huge problem. It's still, it's, it's a massive problem in healthcare. But those early years of my career really opened the door to that issue that I've become even more not only aware, but interested in. Yeah, you have the unique perspective of actually being on the ground working with those providers directly before kind of moving into the academic space, which I think gives you a unique perspective of what that challenge is. 
and what that looks like. And for those of our listeners who maybe don't know about burnout, can you go ahead and just give us what what is kind of a working definition of physician burnout? It's a question you get a lot because I think there's a little bit of an issue when it comes to defining what burnout is. There's the academic framework. It goes back to Christine Maslock and her definition, which really focuses on three things, overwhelming exhaustion, cynicism, and really a lack of personal accomplishments. That's kind of technical though, right? I mean, most of us, when we say we're burned out, we're like cynicism or lack of personal accomplishment. What does that really mean? You know, you have to get into it and kind of dig through it. But I I came across a definition a while back, and it's one that I always come back to when I talk to folks. And we all experience stress, whether it be in our personal lives or professional lives. For example, I've got three kids at home. And when it's 7 a.m. in the morning, our little five-year-old, she doesn't want to get up right? So that's an acute stress situation when you're trying to run to work. But the interesting thing about that is when we get to work, that stress goes away. And with burnout, it's stress that doesn't go away. So think about working in your job right now. You take that stress home with you. It affects not only your professional life at work, but then it bleeds over into affecting your personal life. All of a sudden, you really are kind of withdrawn from your your personal life. You don't want to interact maybe with your significant other or your family or something. It just has a ripple effect. So the best way to think about burnout and a good working definition is, is, is job stress that won't go away. The good thing is that we have a lot more awareness around mental health conditions as a whole. But also some of the terms can be thrown around kind of haphazardly. I'm a little stressed, so I feel burnt out or like I'm a little down in the dump, so I'm depressed, almost lessening the severity of some of these terms. So I do think it's important that there is there is at least some understanding of the definition for it so you can differentiate no, I'm stressed and maybe tired or no, this is legitimately burnout. And that means that we need to do something more than maybe just try to relax and do some of these other things. So it's interesting that you say that because I do feel like that is something in particular that can kind of take away the weight of, of burnout and what that looks like for individuals. When someone is evaluating if they are burnt out or not, how is that typically measured or what is typically looked at whenever you're trying to evaluate if you're experiencing burnout or not? I think of it like this. If you have a fever, for example, it's pretty easy to define that. Go take a thermometer, place it in your ear. If it's 101 degrees, you have a fever. Something's right. wrong. Everybody knows that. Particularly, again, I go back to my kids, but if, if you have kids, that burnout's different, though, right? Because if you remember just a little bit ago, we were kind of discussing, or at least I discussed a little bit about the different definitions of burnout. Well, with those different definitions also comes different ways of measuring burnout. And there's a list of ways to measure burnout. They've all been proven valid in the literature. We can go back and look at Maslach's definition, which is really the golden standard. She, she and her colleagues came out with the Maslach burnout inventory back in the early 1980s. That's, again, kind of the gold standards, 22 questions thereabouts. But there's also a few other ways. When I wrote my dissertation in graduate school, I focused on the Copenhagen burnout inventory, mainly because 
it was free to use. But and if you've been in graduate school, you barely have two pennies to rub together. So we all know where that's we're all coming from there. But there's also the Oldenburg burnout inventory. The Oldenburg and Copenhagen burnout inventories come from Europe. There's also the Mini Z inventory. The mini Z question. And that was actually from an article that I was a part of just this past year where we looked at and explored urban versus rural family physician burnout. But we used the mini Z, which is one question. Are you experiencing burnout? And so there's there's several ways to, to define it. And that's just a few of those ways to measure it. So between the questions you're asking for rural and urban providers, did you see differences in responses? Yeah, so it's interesting. We did this comparative study with the, I was fortunate enough to, to work with the American Board of Family Physicians. And we basically looked at all the family physicians that recertified their board, their board certifications. And I kind of went to this project thinking, hey, rural physicians, rural family physicians in particular have a huge job, not to detract from anybody else, but a family physician working in a rural community, they wear many, many, many hats. And they may not have the luxury of a huge team of you know, case managers, uh, maybe a pharmacist or something like that to help maybe with like me- medications or something that perhaps uh, a family physician in an urban area may have the opportunity to interact with. So the burden for patient care is a little bit higher. And so going into the research, I thought we're going to see these rural physicians way more burned out. And uh, what was really interesting about it all was after we got the data and looked at it, there wasn't any difference. Hmm. And we were fortunate enough to publish that in the Journal of Rural Health. It actually went to press, I guess it was the fall of this year. But our, our argument around all of that is that if you've done a residency, say, in a rural area, you want to be in a rural area. Likewise, if you've done a residency in an urban area, you want to probably be in an urban area practicing. So if you go practice, maybe you've done training in an urban area and you go work in a rural area, you don't want to be there. And that could probably play a bigger role on impacting your level of burnout as opposed to other factors. There's a lot to be said of being able to practice and work within the setting that you find most comfortable or where you want to have your family long term. Sure. Because especially whenever med students are going through rotations, they probably are getting exposure also to lots of different care settings as well. And I'm sure some of those are outside of their preference or comfort zone, which is different, though, whenever you are working full time in a setting, perhaps that maybe isn't your most ideal scenario and can help contribute towards burnout for those particular physicians. Sure. And just as a side to that, you at least in my my previous life when I was working mainly in, in education, not academia per se, but in the residency and education realm, we saw several medical schools try to implement student rotations in as various settings as possible. Kind of getting away from burnout definitely helps with retainment and recruitment of physicians and perhaps maybe rural areas. Um, but even medical schools picked up on that. So exposure definitely is the key into that because if you don't have the exposure, perhaps you find a practice setting that you like that uh, you may never be exposed to to begin with. So that definitely has an effect as well. And there's so many different 
settings that you can work in. So getting that exposure, you may end up finding something that you never found that you enjoyed as a provider, trying something new or in a different setting, you may find that that actually is a better fit for you long-term, which would help with your, you know, job satisfaction long-term as well. Absolutely. For sure. So it's interesting. Burnout has not always been a huge topic of discussion. It's been something that's happened relatively recently. So what do you feel were kind of the major events or some of the, what was kind of the impetus of bringing burnout into the conversation with healthcare providers as a whole and kind of putting this as an issue that's on people's radars now? When I give just a basic talk on burnout, I always include the PubMed slide to show uh, publications by year of a topic. And and I always include the burnout. Uh, that, that's one of my first slides I, I go to when I talk about provider burnout. 1980s, it's really low. And then if you just look at that chart, I mean, it's a straight line up now. We're talking about it so much. And, and so that's the next question that kind of comes is like, why are we talking about it now? And we weren't talking about it 30, 40 years from now. Medicine is medicine. Granted, a lot of the practice of medicine has changed, but some of it's still the same. So, so why is it? I think really there's a few reasons. One, I think we've seen it increased bureaucratization of medicine. Anytime you go to the doctor now, uh, the doctor is in front of the screen or any provider for that matter, documenting, 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 documenting. I think for family physicians, the latest study I read, for every patient that a family physician sees, there's about 20 minutes of documentation associated with that. So over the last 10 years, we saw the implementation of electronic health records that are basically in every clinic now in America. But even more importantly than that, and something that maybe doesn't get as much attention maybe, is that we've kind of seen the American family structure change a little bit over the last couple decades. Growing up, my dad never changed a diaper. He didn't do anything and other than work. That was his job. He went to work. He came home. My mom stayed at home and my mom cooked our meals. My mom took care of us. If we were sick, she went to school, picked us up, whatever. And, and nowadays, most families are, are two income families. Mom and dad are both working. And on top of that, I think what we also see is that in medicine, there's a lot of, of females going into medicine. Mm -hmm. So definitely this you know, evolving period of medicine where um, we're seeing, in some cases, even more females right going into certain uh, fields of medicine doesn't really change the dynamics of the, the mother-father relationship at home, right? Moms are still carry the brunt of, of child rearing and, and that sort of thing. And also too, I'll say this as a father, I do more <laughs> than my dad and, and I enjoy it, right? I enjoy being a dad, but it's a lot more hands-on. And I, I coach baseball with my son and there's a group of us guys that coach. One of them is a pediatrician. And we talk about this a lot. When I was a kid, you never saw a physician out there coaching a baseball team. So there's, there's a lot of this family involvement and it's great. We need that in our society and culture, but work is becoming much more complex at the same time that we're seeing this demographic of the family kind of shift a little bit too, right? And I think that plays a really big role in how, how with, the, with the rise of this burnout that we're seeing. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have piece together those 
things actually impacting what burnout looks like for healthcare providers. Things have changed significantly over the past several decades. And, you know, that's something to take an account of whenever you are thinking about how do I retain or help my providers, being able to take an account of some of those different things, looking at documentation burden, as well as the physicians who are women. Although now the men in the marriage relationship are doing more with the children, it still skews heavily towards the woman taking the brunt of those. So if she's a physician already working a lot of hours, also taking on those additional responsibilities at home, although it's better, it does not necessarily mean that that isn't as significant of a burden for female physicians as it has been in the past. Oh, sure. And personally, too, I probably should have mentioned this sooner, but my wife is a cardiac nurse practitioner. She's still expected to be mom, Mm -hmm. putting the children, helping with baths or whatever. They want mom sometimes. They don't want dad. I get that. Sometimes I don't want myself either. So (laughs) it's just the documentation burden is a very, very real issue. You were part of, you know, the electronic health record integration. Do you feel like the electronic health record has helped with the documentation burden or has it actually made it to where there's an even larger documentation burden because of the implementation of the EHR? I think it's a, it's an interesting question. Before the EHR, there wasn't as docu- there wasn't as many documentation issues, right? The, the EHR sort of made the kind of was, I guess, the door to open mm-hmm. for more, di- is the portal for more documentation. And that's not to say, though, too, that just medicine has become much more complex in the, in the way that it's not the business side of it, is mm-hmm. what I guess. One of the other hiccups that I constantly heard about was like the pre-authorizations and then all of the rules that now insurance companies have, for example, to get those quality incentive uh, payments. I was just at a hospital yesterday, actually, and, and they were talking about a new provider a quality incentive payment model that some of the insurance companies had pitched them. And these these leaders were, were gung-ho about it, saying you know, we could receive hundreds of thousands of dollars more per year if we just do these things and make sure that we're doing this, this, and that. In the back of my mind, I'm sitting in the back of the room thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but how many more boxes will that require for somebody to check off to make sure that that requirement has been done? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think a lot of times, because of just how medicine is today in healthcare, we have to think about. Obviously, we have to we have to make money in healthcare. I mean, that's the number one priority uh, to stay afloat. However, you also have to be cognizant of what those steps or what those processes down the road create. And clicking four or five mouse clicks doesn't seem like much, but when you you know, add that on to maybe seven or eight patients a day, that's 32 mouse clicks more that you, that you have to do in a day. It, it definitely gets, it's Pandora's box for overwhelmingness, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of always this tug of war in healthcare of how do we, so as you said, like, Healthcare has to be profitable in order to stay afloat, but then also how do you reduce costs for the patient? 
or just reduce overall medical spending in general. So especially when you think of the context of Medicaid and Medicare, that's a big focus that they're going to have. How do I reduce spending for the patients that I'm working with? That's a great point because then we get to this issue of quality, right? We're incentivizing Mm -hmm. quality. And and rightfully so. It's crazy to think that you're in today's uh, climate that you can go into the hospital for a routine surgery and perhaps contract um, something and become septic. Uh, We hear those things happen occasionally, and it's crazy to think that in this day and age that happens. So there's such an emphasis on quality, and like I said, rightfully so. But when we create all these extra hoops to jump through to make sure that you've satisfied all the requirements, you you really also have to wonder, are, are we putting too much on the backs of our providers to ensure that we're checking boxes here? And are we really even cognizant that those things are being done? Now, maybe they are, but also, too, we have this box. Oh, we just got to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. And they just keep Mm -hmm. clicking through the boxes because we think we're getting better quality out of this. And we're trying to create better quality by creating this extra work. But is it really happening the way we want it to? This just made me think uh, when I was working in healthcare, there was like two weeks that the accountable care organization that was part of the hospital, their quality manager left. So there's like two weeks where I was kind of running the torch with it all. And what was so funny about that time was there was this quality plan put into place for the surgeons. And what they wanted was the surgeon themselves to call the patient. And it was it was horrible. They they wanted the physician to take time out of their day, seeing surgery, seeing or doing surgeries rather, seeing patient in clinic and, and everything like that. Then just turn around and call all of their patients themselves too. And it was a great idea for quality, but it was implemented rather kind of haphazardly at the last second. And so that's just another example of like, wow, this is a great idea. Let's just do it real quick without kind of thinking about everything else that goes into it. And I think that some ways we can say that the same thing is true with what we're seeing with the rise of technology in general in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that really kind of transitions into something else that I wanted to kind of pick your brain on is over the past two years, tons of implementation of new technologies when it comes to patient care, telehealth being one of them, what are some of the pitfalls that can come from implementing a technology like this when it comes to provider burnout? And how can organizations or providers better prepare themselves or guard themselves from burnout with the implementation of some of these new technologies in the field? Yeah, I know it's an ever-evolving thing, right? I mean, today, your Apple Watch on your wrist knows when your like heart rate is up. It knows when you moved last. And what's so crazy about that is like you can create an EKG, and then you can send it to your phone. You can download it as a PDF, and you can send it on to somebody. Now, there's a lot of question. Is it really uh, clinically significant? Are you getting good data out of it? I don't know. I'm not a clinician. But I do know this is the first of many steps in that direction. And and we know that this is going to become more of a more of a mainstay. We love health data. We love health data as consumers. Why do you think Apple and Fitbit even Google bought Fitbit recently and now you're starting to see this huge rise in Fitbit advertising? It's it's amazing really to see how that is going. And because of all of that, then now what we we can now track just virtually any data point we want. What's your heart doing at two o'clock on every third Friday of the month? 
well, now we can probably see what's going on. And oh my gosh, it looks like you might have something wrong with your heart. Oh no, what are we going to do? I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, and this was a conversation I had just yesterday too, we were talking exactly about the EHR. And we live in a society where we want data on everything. Everything's about performance metrics, even outside of healthcare. Um, but really inside of healthcare too, I mean, we, we love metrics, we love dashboards, we love opening up these screens and seeing all these little pie charts that tell us everything. And mine, one of my favorites is like the speedometer one, right? Like the RPMs and you see it way over to one side and it's red. And you're like, oh, that can't be good. I'm about to blow the engine up or something. But we love putting these things together. And I think the, the problem with this is, now we can do just about anything we want with data and what is really reasonable and what isn't. What's significant and what's not significant. And this is a problem that I think so many places face right now. Just thinking about healthcare, for example, you see this a lot with physicians. I worked at a place once where for, for if physicians had poor quality for something, it was actually posted in the in the physician's lounge itself. Like so-and-so's readmission rate is higher than so-and-so's. It's like, oh, that's not good. It was definitely a motivator. But I say all of that to say that we live in a very particular time where we can become extremely overwhelmed by things that maybe shouldn't overwhelm us. And this is getting to the 30,000 foot bigger picture of everything in life, but the door then opens for this overwhelmingness, for lack of better terms, of, of what then, you know, what else is next? What else? I'm thinking if, if I was a physician and all this is rolling down the hill, what else am I going to be responsible for? I've got, I've got this long laundry list of, of everything I'm responsible for. But now there's a new piece of technology that's really infiltrated the market. And now everybody's got this little thing on their wrist, for example, that does all this. So now patients are asking me about this. And so that's what I guess is the most, I don't know, anxiety laden part about it all is we can do so much with our phones. We can do so much with our watches now. We can do so much with with every bit of technology and it creates another data point that in turn can be beneficial, but also in turn, somebody's got to manage that, right? And, and who's going to do that? And so that becomes a problem because it's definitely a, a pinch point, if you will, for, for somebody to become overwhelmed with all of that. I thought you brought up an interesting point. There's there's a lot of value in being able to focus on performance metrics. So how is your program or how is the treatment or how is whatever you're evaluating making an impact? But there can be a point where you're too focused on particular metrics or particular things that you want to happen that you're maybe missing out on some of the other benefits of it. So even specifically within telehealth, because it's a technology solution, there can be an implementation cost that maybe you're not going to have just an immediate ROI for implementing. However, if it's something that is a technology that you're developing that A, helps your providers personally, they enjoy being able to provide healthcare in that way, and it's ultimately bringing about better clinical outcomes for your patients, then you might have to kind of adjust your expectations of what things are are you really looking for and what fits and really looking at some of the bigger picture of what are some of the other things that this is impacting. And maybe it's not 
completely just a quantitative number. It might be more qualitative, like our patients really love it, or it helps our providers because now they have a little bit more flexibility with their work. Like it might be a little bit less like hard evidence like that, but those, those things are still important to take into consideration. Absolutely. Just walk down the hall in your, in your clinic space or your hospital. Are people smiling? Are they happy? Are they having fun? Well, how are you going to measure that? There's no number for that. Right. Uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, when you're walking around and you see a smile, somebody's happy. They look joyful. Something's working somewhere. And, and so you're right. You definitely have to look at the whole picture there. Yeah. And kind of with that, do you feel like so te- telehealth as a technology can also be something that can be utilized to help combat physician burnout. What's interesting is I've heard of some physicians, what they'll do in their practices is a big group practice. So there's certain days where only certain physicians are on what they call telemedicine calls. So they'll be the ones um, doing the televisits. Um, And what's interesting about that is that when they're doing their televisit calls, they don't necessarily have to be in their office to do that, right? They can be at their home office or something like that. So there's some flexibility there that that could bring for sure. And then also, too, when you're doing your telemedicine visits, there's unique pinch points with that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think I I like it when technology works. And when technology doesn't work, I tend to get stressed pretty quick. And uh, there's definitely those points, right? And and definitely can see how that can actually add a layer to the whole uh, stress But done right, implemented right, I think there's definitely some ways that this could help mitigate some of that. I go back to that telemedicine day that that I heard of just the other day in a a big practice where one physician, uh, nurse practitioner, take turns doing the telemedicine call for the day. The flexibility and kind of the predictability, too. They also know that, for example, if they're doing their telemedicine calls, they're not going to be hit with like two patients that call that come in hey, I need to be seen. Well, you're not on the schedule. Well, okay, we'll see if we can work you in. They're not really burdened with those kind of acute stress points that you mm-hmm. would see. Yeah, it, it, it does offer some different avenues that those providers can be able to meet with their patients and hopefully relieve a little bit of stress or create a little bit more flexibility in a position maybe where they weren't able to have that before. Oh, sure. It's probably, I, I would think it's really about that rhythm. We are typically our work days follow some sort of rhythm, whether it be if we're a teacher or if we're a you know a clinician or whatever, it follows a rhythm. And having that somewhat of a a predictable rhythm to our day brings us comfort. And, and so I think with the emerging technology such as telemedicine, it's one of those areas right now where maybe not as many physicians are um, doing it as they're accustomed to it. it. It may bring more stress right now, but those who are comfortable with it, who've been doing it for uh, for a little bit of time now, I could definitely see how that could be a way to mitigate burnout. Yeah. Being able to predict your work schedule is something that typically healthcare professionals don't have the luxury of in their jobs. A lot of us, we work in an office or we work jobs where we have a pretty consistent work schedule. That's not usually something that a healthcare professional has the luxury of. Perhaps the implementation of some of these technologies like telehealth can help create a little bit more structure around that. Yeah, absolutely. And I I would say even to that point too, Cam, is, you know, for organizations, I think bigger picture, just kind of taking away what we've discussed here, 
of about burnout and and even looking at telemedicine as, a, as an option or as a potential avenue to mitigate some of that burnout, I, I would just think that in general speaking, I think organizations, they need to at least be aware of the fact that, hey, burnout's a problem. And, and just not even with our physicians, but even you know, just our whole staff. And COVID has really shown that, right? The thing always fascinated me when I was working in healthcare. I remember one time I was down in New Orleans and we were at a family physician recruitment event. And I was in a row of about 20 or 30 other hospitals and I'm looking down both ways. And what struck me as amazing is that, yeah, we offered student loan forgiveness. We offered a pretty decent salary. We offered a pretty decent time off a package. But what differentiated us from the hospital right next to me? And the answer was really nothing. I mean, we're all paying a really high salary. We're all offering about the same package when it comes to time off. We all offer the student uh, loan forgiveness. The problem is in, in healthcare in particular, we need to focus not only on recruitment, but also retention. And the retention work does not get um, recognized enough. And, and so ways to mitigate burnout is definitely a point in, in how to retain our healthcare workforce. And, and so whether it's through telemedicine, maybe it's through administrative time off to catch up on your documentation. And there's definitely technology that could probably even assist in that. But we just need to really, I guess, in healthcare in general, focus on that retention more than we historically have. Yeah, you know, with burnout and provider shortages being such an issue all across the United States for the past several years, I think that's a really good point to bring up. And being able to have a focus on retention and how are we making the conditions for health professionals better outside of just compensation is a really important point to bring up. And so, Zach, I just want to thank you for joining us today and coming on our podcast. And so we appreciate your time and I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Yeah, this is great. I had fun. I want to thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Caroline Yoder. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Caroline Yoder and Cameron Hilt of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.